This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us. And just a bit of a trigger warning. We are talking about baby loss on the show today. We had the incredible Lala Langtree-White from Love Through Loss and clinical psychologist Dr. Marie from Vivamus navigating this really difficult time with us, plus hearing from two dads about their experiences too. Continuing our conversations around breast cancer awareness and that body image piece, Browse by Patsy is offering her services for free to support breast cancer patients. So free eyebrows for those who are about to undergo chemotherapy. It's World Sight Day, so Moorfields was on hand, keeping our eyes razor sharp as we talked about prevention, testing and treatment. And it was Dr. Eamon from the Hills Veterinary Clinic in the studio to answer your questions in pets and vets. Plus, what's new at the Green Planet? It affects as many as 25%, one in four women in the UAE, but miscarriage and infant loss still remain largely taboo topics. And the the grief that parents endure during this time and, and following the tragic end of a pregnancy often goes undisclosed and undiscussed, making a devastating experience even worse because of that perceived stigma and consequent isolation. But these incidents are actually far less isolated than most of us realise. So we are talking about it today. It's not a topic that I feel comfortable talking about, but I think that's why we need to be leaning into this. My goodness, the the numbers are are really staggering. It's estimated that between 10 and 20% of known pregnancies do end in miscarriage before 20 weeks. Um, And about 2.6 million stillbirths, so this is defined as the loss of a baby after 20 completed weeks of pregnancy in the US or 24 in the UK happen globally each year. Joining us in studio, two experts as we talk about all aspects of this, from the practical to the emotional. Um, And we are going to be hearing from one dad in half an hour's time as well. Um, Lala Langtree-White is with us from Love Through Loss. It was launched back in 2016, providing memory boxes to those who do suffer the tragedy of neonatal loss, pregnancy loss and stillbirth. And she also supports families through high-risk pregnancies, premature birth, and in honour of Baby Loss Awareness Week. Next two days um, of awareness and support plus a community event on uh, on this coming Sunday as well. And joining us, I'm really delighted to have clinical psychologist and clinical director, Dr. Marie Thompson from Vivimus in the studio. Both, thank you so, so much. I think it's, as I said, a very difficult topic to discuss. And I think the work that you both do is just so incredible in terms of normalising a very, very difficult topic. Um, Lala, I'd love to start with you if you don't mind, because you've become such an important part of this community and you speak so beautifully about what families need during the most heartbreaking of circumstances. Um, I would love it if you wouldn't mind just explaining a little bit about the work that you do and how you support families dealing with the loss of a baby. Thank you for having us here to talk about this today, Helen. Um, So there's a few ways that um, Love Through Loss supports families and I myself within that. So Love Through Loss is a collaborative um, uh, of a few different communities from IVF Support UAE through to uh, TFMR, Termination for Medical Reasons Mamas. Um, And I'm in there myself representing and overlapping with smaller mighty babies and twins plus. I'm also a voluntary bereavement doula. So I may support families in that um, first response case. So I may be called in by the hospital or by the parents themselves if they found us um, to come in, help with memory making, help to um, coordinate logistical support, 
um, especially with Middle East assistance in terms of cremation, repatriation, burial, um, help them understand what their options are out here and what support's available in the community. Mm -hmm. We have a closed group, um, a Facebook group for the parents, and that's a really important, that peer support's really essential of being able to find someone else who's walked through this experience mm-hmm. um, and then being able to just help signpost them to other people in the community, such as Marie. Um, Marie, thank you for being with us today. And I think a lot of the conversations you have is obviously, you know, behind closed doors and people coming to you in, you know, depths of grief, you know, really, whether that's alone or with their partner. Um, it's obviously a deeply emotional experience. From a psychological standpoint, could you perhaps explain how some individuals typically process this kind of loss and maybe even what kind of factors can influence their grief reactions? Mm, well, thank you for having me, Helen. You're welcome. Um, Yes, I think one of the things that is uh, very relevant to this particular type of bereavement is that it is from the offset a complex bereavement. And the reason for that is um, because of the nature of the bond that we have with our infants, our attachment and our bond to our infants is incredibly intense. As I think as parents, we we widely recognize it's a love like no other. And therefore, it is a grief like no other. So it's a complex grief, and with that, it means it's likely to be more intense. Mm -hmm. It's likely to uh, last for longer. And there's a high potential to have a traumatic bereavement element to it as well because of the nature of what may have happened and I think that word grief is so it's so complicated because you know we think about grief being losing someone that we might have known for a long time but this is this is the grief of the promise of somebody does that make sense it makes a lot of sense Helen absolutely so it's the grief of of the time that you had um, in your pregnancy or with your infant but it's also the the hopes and the expectations Mm -hmm. and what that translates to is when those milestones happen like oh this is when they would start school this is when they would go to university you see a real uh, increase in the intensity of the grief again and there's no magic formula there's no timeline but is that something that you know parents can cling to when will I feel better I think often parents cling to the hope of when will I feel better Um, but I think having worked closely with people who've experienced this um, it doesn't go away Mm -hmm. and I think it's really about how you build a life around it I think for many people they don't want it to go away you know it's it's absolutely by, by wishing it away it would be doing a disservice and not honouring that that life and that promise. It's, I guess, Lala living with it. Is that something you've heard from the community? Definitely. I just as Marie said, I think it's learning to 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 live your life carrying that grief and caring for that grief because that grief is the love of your baby. And I think, as you said, it's you know in in a baby that perhaps um, was miscarriage, especially if it was IVF lost, if it was TFMR. The difficult thing is there are so many people that you know and love and who would normally be there to support you through other types of bereavement Mm -hmm. never met that baby. They didn't have that same connection. And so I think this is where sometimes we fall short in the support so much. We're going to be talking about exactly that. Um, Support through family, support through friends, things to say and indeed not say it. What can be One of the most heartbreaking times of a parent's life. Message here saying, so good to see this being mentioned. We lost our son two years ago 
last week. There was no support or anything available and we were supported by a charity in Scotland. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And we've had a number of messages as well. Lala Langtree White is with us today through Love Through Loss. They have got some events happening over the course of the next couple of days and into the weekend, which we'll be sharing details of as well. And joining us from Vivimus, we've got Dr. Marie speaking to us on from a clinical psychology point of view. In studio today, Dr. Marie Thompson from Vivimus, clinical director and clinical psychologist, and from Love Through Loss, Lala Langtree-White. Um, Lala, you mentioned earlier about how you support families um, who have lost a baby, whether it is miscarriage or stillborn. You mentioned memory making. Are you able to explain a little bit more about that? Yes. So we know there's evidence that shows um, that families really benefit in caring for their grief by having spent time with their baby, being able to see their baby, um, help them to process, to to really spend incredibly cherished time. I think often families can feel very frightened about what their baby will look like. But in my experience, every family just adores their baby. Mm -hmm. It's so precious to them. So within our memory boxes here, we have things like an inkless paper kit so that you can take hand and footprints. And I've taken those from really, really early on. I'm very much, I will guide the family and they'll lead the way on what's right for them because Mm -hmm. what's right for one family isn't right for everyone. Um, And what our big passion is, is about creating options. We also have an incredible team of photographers who offer their time free for remembrance photography. And that's always something if ever anybody's interested in in reaching out to us and and putting their name on that list, we always welcome. Um, We have incredible people who help us um, from first impressions with hand and foot casting, which are just a beautiful way that you've got a tangible footprint or handprint from your baby. Um, And one of the things that really helps facilitate this is the introduction of cuddle cots to some of the major hospitals out here. What is a cuddle cot? So a cuddle cot is a specially cooled Moses basket. So families, you think about when we go through loss, the other thing about this is the family, especially if we're talking about pregnancy or stillbirth or early neonatal loss, this woman, this family have just been through birth. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great, that's extraordinary. The fact that you've got postpartum recovery, all of these things will be talking about more during our virtual event in the next couple of days. But you've just given birth. I mean, for those who've done that will know that you need to rest. There is a point at which you have to rest. And it can be very difficult out here where there are huge differences culturally in how long and how quickly people bury. Um, what the Cuddle Cot offers is a cooled Moses basket, 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 basket system where parents can spend time in their hospital room with their baby. And we've had families who have spent three days with their baby. They've had time for the grandparents to come in over and meet their granddaughter. Their son was able to meet their baby. Um, uh, just absolutely incredible. Lala Langfrey-White with us today. Dr. Marie, I wanted to ask you then about some of the coping strategies um, that can, you know, can come up. You know, the the, the psychological challenges, um, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine when we look at short term and long term. But what are some coping mechanism strategies that are commonly observed in patients and families dealing with the loss of a baby and how could they potentially be healthy or I don't want to say unhealthy because it's it's so personal, but maybe harmful? Mm-hmm. Well, what I'm always struck by is the strength and the resilience of people in that situation. And uh, that goes a long, long way, of course. And I think you find that in all human suffering. So I think there's a big piece of this, which is having faith in that, having faith in, faith in human resilience. 
on top of that, I would say, and it's really hard to do, but it's about leaning in to the emotional experience mm. of it uh, because the emotion will be incredibly intense. It will be complex. Um, it will be quite physiological. And for some people, it's the first time they've experienced emotion of that intensity. So, of course, the natural tendency is to avoid that. Mm -hmm. But it is the avoiding that that uh, stops us processing uh, the enormity of the grief. I think, and we've just had a message on exactly this, saying we lost friends over the loss of our sons from, from Ian, saying they didn't know how to react to it. They didn't know what to say, so said nothing. We found out through other friends the more time went on that how awkward they felt. We always want to talk about him. This discussion brings it all back. It's hard to listen to with the cuddle cots. We had this in Scotland and it was so important to spend some time with our son, Atta. And I think we, we talk a lot about exactly that, you know, acknowledging the memory. But as Ian's saying, friends and family often don't know what to do in these situations and unfortunately can withdraw and leaving a family who are going through the most horrendous experience feeling even more alone. What are ways where it's practical or emotional, Lala, that you've seen communities, families and friends rallying and whether that is being there and doing something or just saying the right thing? I think, you know, this is absolutely huge because that family and friend support is, is everything. And, and most families say exactly the same, that they have lost some friends through this and they've been surprised by the people that they've got closer to. I always say, let the parents lead you. Say that you don't know what to say. There is nothing that you can say. You don't need to fix this. As, a, as humans, we're very good at wanting to make something better or we'll fix it. We can't fix this. And say, there's nothing I can say, but I am always here to listen. I am here to help if I can. If it's with siblings, if it's school runs, if it's dropping off meals, having very low expectations of a return from the parents, but just constantly being there. Make a note in your diary. Remember important things like when their estimated due date was. Remember the anniversaries. Um, ask them if there's a way that you can help um, them to mem uh, remember, remember their baby. Um, I've had a message here from W saying, thank you for this. Can your experts recommend a book that explains bereavement to a four-year-old? Um, I suffered a loss at 18 weeks and naturally our four-year-old was very excited about becoming a big sister. Um, we've told her basic terms about what's happened. The baby has died, isn't in mummy's tummy anymore and she knows the doctors um, have it now. Are there any books that explain death, loss, etc.? At Love Through Loss, we actually have a little lending library and we try to collect lots of different books. And there may be ones, we've got some that are a bit more grief specific. There are some that are unique to the um, termination for medical reasons, for example, for helping children to understand that process. Um, but we also have ones that are more general, but also have a beautiful message that ties in with grief, such as The Invisible String. Um, one of my favorites that we read at the Afternoon of Remembrance every year is um, Nancy Tillman's Wherever You Are, My Love Will Find You. Um, that really that love is love continues. And I think that's a really beautiful message for almost all baby loss is that it does continue. Can you tell us a little bit about Sunday? Um, this is an event that's become such an important part of so many people's lives here in the UAE when it comes to saying their baby's name and, and coming together and, and not feeling alone. How did it start and, and what have you got planned? So the wonderful thing about Love Through Loss is it has just grown year on year. And a huge part of that is thanks to places like yourself that are starting to really get that conversation into the mainstream. We still hear all the time, I wish I'd known about you. I wish I'd found you sooner. So these conversations are just so pivotal in that. 
Um, the evening of remembrance we've been doing for a few years now and we get gifted the most beautiful space at the Nature Escapes in Albarari. We all know it's a little bit hard sometimes to find a beautiful green patch and none of them compare to the beautiful gardens there. Um, and it is the most beautiful candlelit um, evening where parents can come together, they can talk, laugh, cry. It's just an afternoon of just the most beautiful emotional tapestry. Um, and then at 7 p.m., there is the global wave of light. So that is a candle that's lit all around the world at 7 p.m. so that it burns for 24 hours in memory of all these beautiful and loved babies. If you want details of this event that's happening on Sunday, and we should say it's open to, to all. Absolutely. No RSVP needed. If you want more details, you can find them on the Love Through Loss website. It's open to people of all ages, you know, families coming along with siblings, all faiths, all religions, all cultures. It is just having an understanding, that common thread of loss. So that is going to be Sunday. For Love Through Loss, we are keeping our two experts in the studio because we're We've had so many messages that I want to be getting to. Thank you so much for being with us through this conversation. We are marking baby loss awareness. We are talking about Baby Loss Awareness Week and we will have news of events that are happening over the next couple of days and many of you getting in touch asking for details of the gathering that's happening on Sunday with Love Through Loss. Um, we're speaking now to Azim Rafiq. He's a former professional cricket player, a whistleblower on racism in the sport. He's written a book on his experience called It's Not Banter, It's Racism. He now lives here in Dubai. And we've spoken before about men's mental health and something that came up in our conversation was the heartbreaking loss that he and his wife suffered. Azim joining us now. Um, thank you so much for being with us again. And I just want to thank you for speaking so openly on the topic of baby loss, Azim. How are you? Good afternoon, Helen. I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. It's it's not an enjoyable topic to talk about, but judging by the number of messages from mums and dads, it's so important to be raising awareness about something that happens to far more people than we realise. And judging from the number of messages from men, um, I think it's really important to acknowledge the fact that this is something that happens to mum and dad. You know, it's it's something that you live through together. And I, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about what you and your wife went through. Yeah, I think, uh, as you say, um, you know, you don't realise um, actually how many people do go through it um, until you start talking about your experiences. And, you know, um, from the minute I thought, out a lot of people have got and you know that's made it a, li a little bit easier look we had a really difficult pregnancy um which led to uh, you know losing our son in the 38th week um i just remember you know i remember from the minute i got the phone call because i was at a hit match um and you know through the next weeks and months um yeah i just feel at that crucial time uh, i just feel i wish i had a bit more access to support and you know having the support out there uh, because the trauma of them, uh, you know, that time is something that I live with. Um, you know, it's n not something you ever get over, but you just learn to live with. And uh, I just hope with Baby Loss Awareness Week and more support that's out there through Love Through Loss, uh, people can realise that there is support out there uh, if they need it. You, We have said before that men are often, and I don't want to say left out of the conversation, but perhaps aren't inserted into it. Why do you feel like it's important to hear the men's voices on this too? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, uh, I, I remember it very clearly when I was, when I was speaking to the doctor, um, you know, days after. It was very much like, yeah, it's it's her baby. Um, and look, you know, women go through a lot through this process. Uh, that's something that we'll never quite understand. But, I, um, yeah, 
being left out of that conversation and just feeling like um, it was my baby as well. And mm. uh, I experienced that trauma in a different way, but, uh, you know, it's something that lives with me. And uh, it's just important to uh, make sure the language around uh, that crucial time people understand because it doesn't happen through, you know, any nastiness. It's just because people don't know how to uh, deal with the situation. Uh, it can leave a big effect on uh, everyone in I think there's also, unfortunately, this expectation about, you know, the man being the strong one for his wife. And that's it does does everyone a, a disservice, really. You know, it's not acknowledging the grief and the loss that you're experiencing, too. And we heard earlier from Ian talking about, you know, losing friends because they didn't know how to react, didn't know how to interact um, with with him following the loss. And I wondered if that was something that you experienced and maybe advice for friends and family who want to be there as a support. Yeah, I think it's like uh, you know, around most grief, um, it, it's difficult for people uh, as to what to do, but not doing anything uh, can be really damaging. Uh, I remember some of the advice I got around it, and um, you know, uh, just a lot of people sort of removing themselves uh, from the situation to um, you know because they didn't know what to do. Uh, I remember one of the advice was, "Don't don't neglect yourself." Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that that is a very, you know, in terms of the uh, reality of it, it, it was so difficult for me not to because I didn't, I didn't have the support to be able to, um, you know, to be able to support myself and my wife. Um, and yeah, it's a really difficult situation. But I would encourage uh, people if they do have friends that are going through it to not just not do anything mm-hmm. um, and um, just, you know, make yourself available because, like I said, that crucial period. Leave laughing. Thank you, Azim. Really, really appreciate you lending your voice to this. I think it's really valuable to see, you know, people in the public eye speaking up. Um, and you've been a great source of support to, and I think, an awful lot of men who've who've been through the same. So, thank you for your time. Um, I really, really do appreciate the generosity of that. And speaking to us recently, we had Kieran McBreen, um, fantastic uh, corporate and teen coach, and we talk about men's mental health. And he started talking about how what he went through you know, him and his wife with the loss of three babies. The stigma for me was to be the strong person in the relationship. And I was the strong person. I'm proud of being the strong person. But actually, I I regret it because I wish I was more present at the time. Mm -hmm. I particularly remember my wife calling me saying that there was, you know, there was blood where I was going to pick her up from work. And as I was driving to pick her up, you know, tears were coming down my eyes. And I kept saying to myself, be strong, be strong, be strong. And we had to go through a scan and I knew exactly what we were going to find in the scan. When I look back, I've got lots of pain. And every time I drive by the hospital, I just get a pain in my heart. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me who was thrown into a bin. It hurts me. Mm -hmm. And I hurt now because I didn't share that pain at the time. Kieran McBreen speaking there. And we are talking about baby loss. And I think it is so, so important to be hearing from people of, of... you know, all the way through those those journeys. Um, and I really, really thank so many people for getting in touch, joining us in studio 
to guide us through this topic and not just on air, but also for the next couple of days. We've got Lala Langtree-White joining us um, from an incredible organisation called Love Through Loss. She supports people through high-risk pregnancies, through premature birth, um, through pregnancy loss and stillbirth as well. Um, You've got a couple of events happening over the next couple of days. You're going to be speaking across a whole range of really valuable topics, Lala. What are you going to be addressing and, and how can people find out more? So the virtual event that we have, um, we've run it for the past couple of years. You can go on our website and you can look at previous years if you're not quite sure what to expect. Um, But what we're doing over the next couple of days is trying to speak to as many different areas and aspects of baby loss, um, whether that be loss after IVF, miscarriage, stillbirth, ectopic pregnancy, termination for medical reasons, neonatal loss, sudden unexpected child death. So many different, we've got parent voices coming on. Um, We're so incredibly grateful to them. We're always very mindful that Baby Loss Awareness Week, the awareness part is not for parents. Parents live and carry this baby and this grief and this love every single day. But it's a real chance for those who don't know that we exist to find us and connect, to be able to hear from others so that they feel less alone and understand that some of the emotions they're going through are very normal and also where to access um, support. We have incredible mental health professionals joining us wonderful midwives and clinical providers um, and uh, we really welcome anyone to join in on those sessions and the recordings will be up a couple of weeks later as well. If you want the schedule for that you're more than welcome to get in touch and send me the word loss um, it's it's all on the website and I'm, I'd be very very happy to connect you there. I'm also in studio today clinical director clinical psychologist Dr Marie Thompson from Vivimus and I had a message that I'm hoping you could speak to we've been talking earlier about there is no timeline on grief there is no getting over something so so traumatic and tragic as as losing a little one but no name on this message saying I had a stillborn baby five years ago and I'm a big supporter of say their name in the wave of light but if anyone speaks to me about him I can't do it without tears running down my face so I don't talk about him except with my husband and other children because it's too emotional people feel awkward and then attempt to console or divert Um, but then I feel guilty about not talking about him uh, she says, I'm, I know it's not an easy thing to answer and I won't ever be over him, nor is that my goal. But is there something wrong with me? Should I have processed this grief better in five years so I can speak about him even briefly without the tears? Dr. Marie, to this listener, what would you say? Uh, firstly, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. This sounds uh, very appropriate and, and uh, normal to me. Uh, what I would say is the the challenge here is... Um, avoiding the intense emotions. Um, So five years on, uh, thinking about what happened still evokes a very strong emotional response. That to me says that while some aspects of this have been processed, not fully. Um, I don't think this is um, an experience that has been fully emotionally processed. And perhaps that's a good example of a time when professional support is needed over and above um, what uh, friends and family can offer. Are there any, and I know it's never going to be a one size fits all, and it's very much, very much dependent. I'm certainly not asking you to, to say what treatment you would give to this listener having not, not ever met her, but are there any um, treatments or techniques that can be really useful in dealing with grief? And you mentioned earlier, you know, trauma and, and PTSD. 
Absolutely, Helen. Um, I think generally speaking, of course, it's really about um, a thorough assessment to see what, what's going on because we can uh, assume that there's a, a grief uh, reaction here and that's absolutely appropriate, but it's complex. So um, a mental health professional would be able to tease apart where's the anxiety bit, where's the uh, the PTSD bit, where's the sort of normal grief bit mm-hmm. uh, and be able to uh, think about formulating a bit of a treatment plan about about where to start there. Okay, Dr. Marie with us. Message here saying, sending my love to all who've experienced such loss. I can't even begin to imagine what it's like. And thank you for all of these lovely messages. Message, um, Ian, we heard from earlier saying, Dad, still standing podcast is very good. We love a recommendation. So thank you for that. Um, Lala, we've had a message here, that's, um, which I think we're going to run out of time, but I really want to address it, saying pregnancy after loss is so hard. I miscarried in 2020. I'm now pregnant. I've only known for a few weeks, but it feels like a lifetime and I'm constantly waiting for something bad to happen. How can I deal with, how can I be happy or even slightly excited? I've got zero control. Um, How can I cope with a second loss? I just want to go to sleep until 39 weeks, wake up and have the baby here. You must hear this so so frequently you are not alone in any way shape or form and I think having um, a really good support system is really important during that so a really compassionate clinical care provider potentially um, professional mental health support through that um, uh, one of the clinics in Dubai Sage is actually launching um, with in tandem with Love Who Loss a rainbow pregnancy and parenthood support group which is wonderful and we'll be sharing news about that um, I do just want to say dad's still standing they're going to be involved in the event over the next couple of Fantastic. days our, within our dad's section a great recommend from your um, listener there um, and within pregnancy and parenthood after loss we have a sister group within that out here it's a great chance to speak to other parents I would also say, you know, consider having doula support, get really put that, that scaffolding around yourself. Um, and, um, and and we're going to be talking about that a lot in the coming events in the next couple of days, too. So there are a series of talks over the next couple of days. Lala touching on some really, really valuable topics. It's online. And then on Sunday, you have got that incredible global wave of light Sunday evening at Alborari. If you want details of the schedule of coming together on Sunday with other people who have suffered who want to come together to celebrate to say those names um, and as I said earlier people of all ages of stages of faiths cultures um, siblings have come along in the past I just want to say a final thank you to, to both of you for speaking on such an important topic not just during as Lala said during awareness week um, but but year round so thank you both Lala Langtree White Love the Loss and Dr Marie from Vivamus Your Eye Health on Eye With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai Eye care for you and your children Moorfields driven by your vision. Now, tomorrow is World Sight Day um, and we're focusing the world's attention on the importance of eye care in the workplace in particular. We've got an expert for you today, Dr. Amasafa, the Chief Medical Officer and Consultant Ophthalmologist joining us from Moorfields. How are you, Doctor? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We've already had some questions for you, sir. Tell us a little bit about World Sight Day. Why do you think days like this actually do have real significance, not just for the calendar, but in the community as well? Of course. Um, Well, you know, we are all living a very busy life and we, uh, you know, we sometimes neglect our health, uh, especially if there's there's nothing hurting, there's no Mm. pain or anything like that. We uh, tend, uh, tend to ignore going to the doctors for a checkup. 
uh, World Sight Day is, is really a, a nice opportunity for us to kind of like pause a little bit and first of all, realize how important our vision is for us. I mean, you know, we see the whole world through our eyes and uh, are able to actually function and do things that we like to do because of, uh, of, the, of the fact that we have good vision. So it's very important for us to actually maintain this, this vision. So we, we love this, uh, this opportunity to actually come together, raise awareness and uh, make sure that people understand uh, that the, the health of their eye is very, very important and they need to check it and make sure that uh, it, uh, it maintains uh, healthy. And it is something that is in our control to an extent. You know, we, we talk about early prevention across a whole range of issues and diseases. And eyesight's no different in that sense. But you're right, it does tend to kind of get to the bottom of our to-do list if there's nothing implicitly wrong. And right. when I think about eyesight, and I'm wearing my specs right now, I've got a very boring basic reading glass prescription. But you know, when it comes to having good or okay eyesight, we totally take it for granted. And you know, there are people who are living you know, really difficult lives because of, you know, eye health and lack of vision. So I think it can be, as you say, a really important reminder to take some action and get the help if you do need it. Um, can we talk about some stats? You know, what are the number of people globally that are suffering with, with eye conditions of various types and severity? Well, actually, if you if you look at the, um, uh, you know, statistics of um, people who have eye problems. If you look at, you know, some you you think of a refractive error, which is needing glasses, mm-hmm. is really something that's not a big deal. It is not not a big deal compared to losing vision permanently. But but um, the, the the you know the most common problem in the world is actually uh, uh, needing glasses, especially in this uh, this day and age where uh, I'm sure you're stand, you're, you're sitting now in front of multiple screens looking at them all day. <laughs> three, <laughs> so three screens. We all <laughs> exactly. So we all unfortunately have something similar where we keep staring at uh, screens, we look at our phone all the time, that increases our uh, refractive error or need for glasses. Another thing is, uh, you know, um, the, the, the leading cause of, of vision uh, other than glasses is actually cataracts. Cataracts uh, is one of the most common cataract surgeries, the most commonly performed surgery across the board in every specialty. Oh, uh, that, wow. that, that gives you an idea of, of how how large scale that that problem is now we live in a country thankfully that uh, uh, access to care is available but there like you know are there are places in the world in like africa for example where uh, people don't have access to care and they go blind from cataract so um, another another very important condition which people really need to uh, pay attention to is glaucoma. Uh, glaucoma is kind of like a silent blinder, literally, because there are no symptoms. You have glaucoma, but just to, for the listeners, is basically when the pressure of the eye is too high to the point that it causes vision loss. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, there are so, no symptoms. The patients have no pain, no redness, no nothing, uh, while, while this high pressure is actually eating up their optic nerve. So those are things that need to be looked at, checked and um, treated so that we can maintain good vision for the rest of our lives, hopefully. With something like glaucoma, and you're talking there about being a a silent and and symptomless issue, how do you then check and test for it? You know, what would you be doing at Moorfields to to stay on top of, you know, awareness on glaucoma in particular? Yeah, so it, it is actually a very simple test where we check the pressure of the eye. So everybody thinks about the pressure of my blood pressure. The mm. blood pressure is, is independent from the eye pressure. The eyeball has a pressure, which usually needs to be less than 20. The number needs to be less than 20. Um, so, so we check the pressure, make sure that the pressure is within normal limit. If it's high, then there are some other uh, testing that we can do uh, to, to scan the nerve, for example, and see if there's any issue there. 
Now, people might say, well, how do I know if I have it or not? Well, first of all, to, to know really, you need to see your doctor. But family history is a big thing uh, with glaucoma because usually it runs in family. So if you know anyone in your family, especially the immediate family, mm -hmm. father, mother, uncles uh, or aunts that have glaucoma or, or use, use uh, uh, eye drops to reduce the pressure in the eye, uh, then that is something that you need to kind of keep on your radar and, and check it to make sure that things are okay. Dr. Armour with us today, Chief Medical Officer and Consultant Ophthalmologist, joining us from Moorfields Eye Hospital. We've had messages coming in about do's and don'ts for kids. Mohammed, I'm going to come to this next because I'm slightly concerned to get the answer to this question. And I'm curious if we've got enough data. But when we look at screen time and impact on eye health and even our children's vision, what do we need to know? I'm worried about screen time limitations. I'm pretty sure we're smashing them in our house. We'll be finding out more next. Your eye health on eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. World leading experts in eye care. Moorfields. Driven by your vision. We are marking World Sight Day. It falls tomorrow. And joining us from Moorfields is Chief Medical Officer, Consultant Ophthalmologist, Dr. Amar Safa. Um, doctor, I've had a number of questions for you. We're going to try and get through as many as possible. Um, I do selfishly have a question for you myself. And I don't know if there's any data or such, or perhaps you can just speak to what you're hearing from colleagues and what's coming into clinic. But the impact of screen time on our children's eyes, whether it is eye health or dry eyes or perhaps you're seeing a bit of a decline in vision. Any correlations yet? And what do we as parents need to be aware of? Uh, this is a very, um, not a selfish question. Actually, it's a very important question, I think, uh, because there is actually uh, data, uh, you, you know, linking the, uh, the screen time in children with the development of myopia or nearsightedness. So it is actually known uh, fact and known medical fact that the longer uh, a child spends in front of the screen, uh, the more likely that they will actually, uh, if they have myopia, for it to increase. And if they don't have it, then it, it might actually develop. Now, of course, it's not the only factor, but it definitely, uh, you know, makes things worse if you have the genes for it, if you have the, the you know, the, the predisposition for it. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, um, as we all know, uh, most of our schools now uh, dictate the fact that, you know, you, you have to submit your homework online. Everything is online. There's really no paper and pencil anymore or pen. Um, but, uh, but at least if we can, as parents, uh, limit the recreational use of, uh, uh, of screens as much as possible because that's basically where kids really spend uh, hours and hours without any uh, uh, breaks. Mm -hmm. The main issue with, with using a screen is not to sit in front of a screen for a long period of time without any break, making your muscles work and then uh, ultimately reach a point where they're spasming and not relaxing anymore. So for every hour, for example, you have to sit in front of the screen, you have to actually give your eye a break and look out the window, look at something really far away, for at least 10 minutes or so. So, you know, getting away from your screen, uh, your desktop, and then holding your phone and checking your email is really not a break. <laughs> Going from one, one thing to another. I'll tell my boss. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dr. Mohammed was asking about blue screen um, yeah. glasses for kids. Yeah. Um, I actually got some glasses a couple of weeks ago and they, they did try and upsell me on it, but I've heard such mixed reports that I felt a bit cheap and didn't add it. So I wondered if there's any truth in having those reflective or protective glasses. Yes. So that's also thank you for this question, because this, there was a, quite a bit of a confusion about these, uh, you know, uh, blue glasses or blue ray glasses. So so initially, the, the, the word on the street, if you will, was that this blue ray coming out of the screen is actually damaging your retina. Mm -hmm. Now, this has been conclusively ruled out. It does not damage your retina. It actually can 
uh, screw around a little bit with your sleep cycle mm-hmm. uh, through through um, affecting your your melatonin level in the in the brain. Okay. So uh, so you don't sleep as well. You don't sleep as deeply if you are actually looking at a screen for a long time before you go to bed. So uh, that put aside, it's not really damaging your retina. Is it? Does it make you more comfortable if you spend long time ta- long time in front of a screen? Yes, it does. So it really is a. Uh, it should be looked at as a potential comfort thing more mm-hmm. than protection from any damage. It's a good distinction. Okay, maybe I'll go back. Um, we've had a message <laughs> here, no name, saying, I have recurrent corneal erosion. Use drops mm-hmm. on my left eye daily to ad- avoid dryness when waking up in the morning. What fix is there to this? I don't want to be using drops my whole life. Any insights yeah. on this condition, doctor? Definitely. So recurrent erosions basically happen when somebody gets a, a trauma in the eye very commonly either a paper cut or a finger, uh, you know, in the, in the eye by mistake, of course, playing basketball or something like that, they get basically a weak point in the cornea. And whenever the eye gets dry, the, the epithelium, the very superficial part actually sloughs off. So what we do with this, uh, if it's happening a lot, then there is a, a way to actually scrape it off uh, with laser. And then uh, this area will, I mean, will, will heal well and it shouldn't happen again. So she should see a cornea specialist. Okay. You have one at Moorfields, I presume? We have three of them. Good. <laughs> yes. Good. Okay. Well, I will reply to this listener with the, with the website there. Um, okay. We were talking earlier about prevention being proactive. And I, I guess it is a blessing for, for, for those listening who have got great eyesight. But what can we be doing to prolong that? We've talked about screen time, but what about diet, supplementation, any other lifestyle factors that you'd like to see everyone listening today, you know, try to incorporate into our daily lives? Well, uh, yes, thank you also for this question. So basically, I would say, uh, particularly for the eye, um, uh, other than the screen time issue, um, please pledge, pledge to me, to yourself, to your family, to, uh, to check your eye at least once. You're an adult, you've never checked your eyes before, you should check your eyes make sure that there isn't anything going on that you don't know about. And then from there on, uh, living in a normal, happy life and then hopefully healthy life, eating well, exercising, all of that actually reflects positively on your eye. Because if you don't have diabetes, if you don't have high blood pressure, that actually is a, a burden taken away from your, uh, from your eyes to, 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 to deal with. Mm-hmm. So being or leading a healthy life in general will positively also reflect on your eyes and eating well also reflects on your eyes. I've had a message from my husband. <laughs> oh, okay. And he says, if laser eye surgery is so good, why do so many eye doctors wear glasses? That is a very common question. I get myself, actually. Okay. So, <laughs> so the answer to that is the following. Uh, LASIK eye surgery is an excellent procedure, but it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. What, is, what does that mean? Not everybody is a good candidate for it. So there's a, a significant amount of testing that needs to be done on the eye to make sure if, it's a, if you're a good fit or not a good fit. That's number one. Number two, age plays a, uh, a role. Uh, so if you're 40 and above, you can still have it done, technically speaking. But there are so many other complicated issues that you need to consider, such as reading glasses. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to correct your distance glasses and screw up your near vision or the opposite, you know. Uh, and this is something that only people that are over 40 will understand what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> younger people go like, what is, this, what is this guy talking about? I can see where it's near. So, so what I'm saying is that uh, most doctors are usually uh, over 40, uh, but, but, uh, but that becomes really a choice. I know a lot of doctors that actually have it done, eye doctors. And uh, again, it's, it's a personal choice. I will tell Mr. Farmer that. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you and you've explained some of these concepts so well. Um, As I said, 
you are there, consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfield Eye Hospital. Are you okay if I share the website if anyone wants to get in touch Absolutely. and get in contact? Amazing. Absolutely. Dr. Amat, wishing you, so you and the team, I guess, a happy World Sight Day tomorrow. I'm expecting some balloons in reception. Have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon ahead. Dr. Amat Safak. <laughs> It is October and we have, of course, been discussing so many aspects of breast cancer awareness from, of course, the importance of early detection through to dealing with some of the complex emotions that can come even after getting the all clear. So I would like to touch on body image now with Patsy Kerr from Brows by Patsy. She is something of an artist when it comes to creating the illusion of brows, lips, even nipples using semi-permanent makeup. And she's offering up those services for free. We're talking brows now in particular during the month of October to support those who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Welcome to the studio, Patsy. How are you? Thank you, Helen. I'm good, thanks. Now, be- before we do talk about patients coming in and spending time with you, can you explain what semi-permanent makeup is and how it works and how you work with it? Sure. Um, so semi-permanent makeup is the process of implanting pigment into the upper layer of skin. Um, you can work on most areas of the body. So we do mostly cosmetic treatments um, and also get involved with the medical side of things, which is where the pre-chemo treatments come into. So you're called Brows by Patsy. So we are talking about, you know, semi-permanent makeup on the brows. We can do lash line as well. Yeah, eyeliner and lips um, are the most sort of uh, common cosmetic ones. Do you have any weird requests? I know that freckles are kind of, you know, across TikTok now people having like yep. illusion freckles have you had any requests for that? I have and I won't go near it what? Really? Why is that? Yep. And also the um, under eye concealer oh, Really? Long term it does not look good Interesting it, Okay um, So in terms of number of sessions that people need how long it lasts what do we need to know? Generally it's um, two sessions required to do the full treatment and um, it'll last around 12 to 18 months depending on skin, sun exposure and a few other elements. So generally two treatments. So what are, I mean, you've been doing this an awfully long time, you've trained internationally, you've you've won awards and I'm curious then, what are some of the myths and misconceptions that you've heard over the years about semi-permanent makeup? I think the most common one is that it doesn't look natural. Interesting. Which is definitely not the case. I mean, I would say if people aren't skilled, it probably can look unnatural. Definitely. Is that fair? Yeah, that's definitely fair. (laughs) Uh, Also, I think what used to be sort of um, eyebrow tattoo and lip tattoo back in the day around sort of 20 years ago Mm -hmm. was definitely not a natural looking effect. Um, And then it's sort of progressed and it has really come a long way and it is always evolving. Tools are always improving. Pigments are always getting better. So you can definitely achieve a very natural result now. So why, I guess maybe, maybe it's a personal question, I don't know, but why, why do you feel like it's important to lend your skills during Breast Cancer Awareness Month this, this October? I think it started a few years ago when I had a few clients coming in who'd finished their chemo treatments and they'd all, all had commented on how difficult it was for them during treatment, not mm-hmm. having eyebrows, struggling to pencil in eyebrows without anything to follow. And I think I just realised that maybe people don't really realise that there is something you can do before you start treatment. Which so, so the timing is really important? Very. Okay, let's talk about that, you know, because you are offering free eyebrows, semi-permanent makeup for people who have been diagnosed with cancer but haven't yet started their chemo. Can you talk to us a little bit, about, I guess, about the timeline and the safety and the suitability of candidates for this? Generally, once chemo has begun, we can't really do much. The skin texture changes, mm. 
Um, the skin sensitivity is very high, so we we don't really do the treatments during treatment. So this is a, this a bit of a preemptive strike then before there's it hair is. loss. It is. Okay, so that must be interesting as well because you can obviously follow what they have naturally and enhance it mm-hmm. as well. Um, so what kind of results can people expect? So generally here, treatment moves very fast. Mm-hmm. When people get diagnosed, we are very lucky that we live in a city where it is readily available to begin very quickly. So generally when people contact me, it's a matter of days, sometimes a week or two before they are starting treatment. Mm-hmm. So we have to get started pretty quick. Unfortunately, with that quick sort of timeline, we don't really get the opportunity to do the follow-up, which is around two to three weeks later. Mm-hmm. So we do one treatment usually and... It's sometimes enough for people to kind of carry them through. Otherwise, um, they at least have some sort of shadow of a colour that they can follow with a pencil should they need to. What about the emotional side, Patsy? You know, it must be be an emotional time. You know, people are are spending time with you at a real potential crossroads in their life. Um, What's it like to have them, you know, to hold their hand through that part? It's been very emotional, actually. Um, Lots of hugs, uh, tears. I've made friendships through this. I've sat in rooms with people during their chemo. Um, I've learned probably a lot more than I would like to know Mm. about this um, sort of treatment that they go through. Mm. Um, But I guess making myself aware of that has helped me to sort of give that a little bit of an emotional support and boost their confidence. Um, Can I ask then about some of the other illusion work you do? You mentioned there about, you know, lips and eyeliner, but you've also done um, women, you know, post mastectomy, you know, post surgery about creating the illusion of of nipples. This is this is art. You know, it really, really is. That must be an incredibly emotional thing to do. It is emotional. Um, But I also love doing it because I see how it lifts women's confidence Mm -hmm. after, you know, they've not really been feeling very good about themselves in, in all ways. So for me, if I can at least help a few people and at the same time raise awareness and bring attention that it is not just for older women. I've seen women who are younger than me in their 20s, 30s, and I I guess with that is why I do this big campaign every October to try and get women to go and get tested. There's a lot of free places around Dubai that offer free screening and we should definitely take advantage of that. I'm going for my mammogram tomorrow. Good. Um, a question from Liz saying, um, after treatment, can you get your eyebrows done? Yes, you can. However, we always advise to get advice from your oncologist. We don't really do anything until your white blood cells have kind of gone more into the normal range mm-hmm. and your immunity is a little bit higher. Okay. Liz, I will send you Patsy's details. So it is free for eyebrows during October, which I think, you know, you're incredibly busy. So it's, it's fantastic that you're obviously prioritising this. For anyone that wants to pass on this information to someone in their life or perhaps, you know, just be, be aware, um, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? What's the best way of booking? They can contact us through Instagram, which is Browse by Patsy, or they can contact us through the clinic, which is L'Esprit Medical Clinic, uh, which you can find on Instagram as well or on Google. There you go. Browse by Patsy. If you want to send me the word browse, I will send you the Instagram. There is a post about it and you can obviously be contacted there as well. But a really wonderful initiative. And I think it is something that we we often overlook, you know, when it comes to having that sense of self and feeling good and presenting our, you know, so-called best face, even in the hardest of circumstances. So if you want details, it is 
free brows, semi-permanent makeup for those who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, the timing, as Patsy says, is really, really important. And she has become a real expert in making sure that you know she's working with people who are suitable candidates for this. If you've got any questions, just get in touch. I can obviously connect you with Patsy as well. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. And it is all about your animals this hour. Joining us from the Hills Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Iman, how are you? It's lovely to have you in the studio. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much, uh, Helen, for having me here. It's going to be a busy one. Already lots of messages. Before we get to the text line, though, because it is your first time on Pets and Vets, I'd love to know a little bit about you, where you're from and why you wanted to be a vet, if you don't mind telling us. Well, uh, my name is Iman Al-Amin. I'm Sudanese. And um, uh, I really love uh, small animals. I love animals generally, but specifically cats and dogs. So, yeah, that's why I decided to be a vet. Okay, confession time. How many animals do you have in your home right now? Um, Five. Okay, yes. Right. Break it down. <laughs> what do we have? And crucially, and I love names on the messages. What uh, are the animals' names? All right, so I have Juju. She's a, a tiny little cat. This is uh, like uh, three months old oh, yes and i have poodle <laughs> yes uh his name is um carmen yeah uh, this is a um, very close pet so the rest back home but this do i have them here in dubai now we can take all sorts of questions today and we've had many from you know hair and teeth through to health problems as well but can we start a little bit about one of your areas of interest which is about skin health challenges in our furry friends what do we need to know and do you have any tips for us pet parents tell us yes 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 so first of all they have to feed the complete and balanced diet Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, that's meaning like all the food that uh, contain the essential ingredients like multivitamins um, I mean vitamins mineral fats and carbohydrate good quality protein same as us Yes, same, same like us, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and uh, provide a supplement, a uh, good supplement for skin, which is, uh, include omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid, and zinc as well. Mm-hmm. It's very good to prevent the irritation. So, uh, also, we can make a bath time for that one. So, bathing them to remove all the dirt, allergens, uh, debris, odor, it uh, can uh, prevent also skin irritation. Brushing them, yeah. Well, we've had a question from exactly that. Bella saying, is it okay to brush a cat daily or does it hurt the cat? Uh, Actually, for cats, no. Uh, It's not advisable to brush their cat daily, their um, teeth daily, because uh, if they are on cable... uh, Oh, no, this is hair. Sorry. Brushing them as their hair. The the, hair, yes. yes. (laughs) All right. I thought brushing the teeth. (laughs) Teeth next. (laughs) Uh, It depends on their, like, uh, breeds. Like, for example, long hair breeds, uh, they need several brush per week if it's not daily. But, like, uh, short hair breed, it's enough one uh, quick uh, brush session per week. So that's enough. Quick little tidy. Our Our dogs love being brushed. They, exactly. They find it, you know, it's just like a real treat. They get the, the brush out and they're like, <gasps> yeah, they're the enjoying back, it. Just like, you know, ready for their pampering session. And my, we task our children with it. We're like, okay, this is a this is a job for you. They have a little bit of bonding time. But yeah. it is a question we've had quite a few times is about how often should you bathe your cat? And the answer is always 
not actually as often as you think because they're taking care of it themselves. <laughs> so let, yeah. let's talk teeth. We've had a message here saying, should we do descaling on teeth for our senior dog or should they not have it done? The dog is nine years old. Yes, we can. It's a bit risky, like with regard to the sedation, but yes, we can. Till like 11, 12, it's okay. Okay, that's really good information yeah. because we've got two senior dogs, seven and nearly 11. Yep. And they both get their teeth done. I would say it's a great expense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But we have to do blood work first so yeah. that we can uh, evaluate the case, whether we will go for that one or just wait. We have got many questions coming in. Uh, we've had another question about cat's dental hygiene, which we're going to come to. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Dr. Eamon is with us from the Hills Veterinary Clinic in Dubai Hills. Um, we are on hand to help. And when I say we, I don't mean me, I mean her. So if you do have any health or behavioural issues with your pet, please get in touch. And Lisa's actually sent us a video of a rescue kitten that she's looking after. And it gave me a bit of a shock, to be honest. Poor little thing's got what looks like a very, very, very sore eye. And she's saying, should we remove the eye or is it better to wait until the kitten grows up? The blood work is okay. It's a rescue kitten. He's been on antibiotics for a week, but we don't know whether to wait or to enucleate the eye now. Upon seeing that video, what would, you, what would your advice be, doctor? So in this kind of situation, I guess the kitten, she will be in a lot of pain. So like my best advice in this case for enucleate the eye, just enucleate the eye. Okay. Also double check with her vet. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, We've had a message about, we were just talking about skin conditions in animals, saying for flaky skin in a cat, what shampoo should we use? It's probably not as straightforward as that, I would imagine. What, what would you say to this listener? Uh, I can't say uh, exactly what shampoo like right now. Uh, so it's much better to take her to the vet and let her check. Um, let the vet like diagnose the situation. It might be like yeast infection or uh, allergy. So yeah, it's much better to take the advice from the vet. The root cause. Okay. Uh, Leo, Leo's a good animal name. Leo, say my cat, well, my cat, of course you've got a cat. My cat was spayed a week ago. Her incision looks great, but she's got a bruise next to where the incision is. Is that normal or should I be concerned? So if there is only bruise without any discharge or like swell, like, huge swollen it's it's fine it's fine but make sure she's not leaking the area so mm. that it will not get infected so wound looks good leo if you want to send us a picture you're more than welcome to do that on 4001 we've just been talking about senior dog teeth dr Eman, but we had a message from gina saying what's the best way to care for a cat's dental hygiene i've never tried to brush the teeth of a cat i think it probably could be quite a, a dangerous pursuit um what do pet owners need to know about caring for cat's teeth and I guess maybe some essential tips, tricks, information. Okay, so for cats, uh, they don't need really to uh, brush their teeth daily. Uh, it's much better to keep them in, on kibble and have the, their oral examination like every few months. And if they need dental scaling also, they can do it. But brushing them daily, no, it's no. not advisable, yes. Good. It hurts the gum and yeah. When would you might need to remove a cat's teeth? I mean, we see this quite a lot in, in elderly cats who can only have, you know, wet food because they haven't got the strength of teeth. What, when would a removal be necessary? Uh, so there is like so many different reasons. One of them like uh, teeth infection. If there is like infection or fracture, so it's much better to remove them so that they, they will not like uh, suffer from pain. 
We're going to get through as many as we can as possible. And I'm loving the photos as well. I've even had videos. A uh, message here from Andrew saying, my Arabian Mao Enzo is a poser. Adopted him my first week that I moved here when he was seven weeks old. He's now seven. Very vocal but great company. Andrew, we've said this time and time again on the show, Arabian, Arabian Mouse love a sing-song. Very vocal cats indeed. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. And joining us in studio from the Hills Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Iman is with us taking my questions and yours on 4001 on the app on the WhatsApp too, we were talking about skin conditions earlier and this relates to allergies in pets. And I wondered if you could give us some key takeaways about what we need to know in that area of animal health. All right. So first, uh, you have to address your pet diet. So your allergy pet diet should be very low in carbohydrate. Number two, provide always a source of um, omega-3 fatty acid. Um, You can use also coconut oil because it has lauric acid, which is the antifungal part of the coconut. Mm -hmm. So also offering uh, some pure and fresh water. Uh, It's very important to uh, offer uh, pure water for your dog so that he will not consume like uh, fluoride and chlorine. Uh, uh, or any heavy metals. It's um, it's a really good one here because we know that the water is safe to drink, but so much depends on the water tank that, exactly. you, that you have and how well that's been maintained or not, as the case may be. We have a water filter on our tap now that goes under the sink. Um, so that's where all of our drinking water comes from and our pets as well. But yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really interesting to kind of get it tested and yeah, get onto your landlords, by the way, guys, if you are renting, because this, this definitely falls into their jurisdiction to get that water t- tank cleaned out. I've seen some videos of some shocking ones in the past. So clean, pure water for our pets, rightly so. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we've had a message here asking about ringworm and is it contagious? So is it contagious between animals or is it contagious between humans and animals? Ringworm, it's zoonotic disease, actually. It's contagious between human to human and human to animals. Okay. So, um, like, it, it will be on the soil, uh, infected person or other infected pet. So, how do you break the cycle then? So, like, uh, always uh, avoid the following. For example, don't be in contact with infected dogs or, or uh, person or uh, with their items. Okay. So, yeah. Doctor, I mean, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for coming in today. It's been an absolute pleasure to to meet you and, and hear about your, your journey to being a vet and to answering so many questions that were coming in. If anyone did get in touch, and we've had a question about senior dogs, we've had a question about sneezing cats, I will put these into the mix for next week. We'll have, of course, got pets and vets um, every single Wednesday afternoon between four and five. And Dr. Iman, for anyone that wants to find you in real life, it's the Hills Veterinary there in Dubai Hills. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much, Helen. Really Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Absolutely loving your messages about what what your spirit animal is. This is for your chance to win, I think, a brilliant prize and fantastic timing, by the way, with half term just around the corner. We could be sending you to the green planet. And joining us in studio, friend of the show, Curator Eric, is with us um, to talk a little bit about the Green Planet Nature Park, which opened just this week, yesterday? Yesterday. You're a busy man today. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. Okay, Eric. What's your spirit animal? Probably a lemur. Mm, tell me why. What are the characteristics you identify with? Uh, a little bit 
random, a little bit <laughs> sporadic and multitasking, I guess is a nice word to say. Okay, and Jumping around between things. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm some kind of shaggy-haired dog because I get the zoomies occasionally. Mm. I get this big burst of energy, but I mostly just like being on the sofa, to be <laughs> honest. Um, thank you so much for being with us. So tell us about the new expansion. What have you introduced to Green Planet? So yesterday morning, we opened up the brand new Nature Park. This is a new expansion, over about 1,000 square meters wow. of new botanical gardens uh, from a Vegetable and fruit patches where we can take fruit and use it for the animal diets. That's a super Mm -hmm. smart idea. So you're kind of closing the loop a little bit there as well. Yep. We're moving towards, of course, we always want to move towards some conservation and education messages Mm -hmm. um, and sustainability too. Amongst the other gardens, there's lots of education opportunities for our school groups, but of course for every guest that visits from Mediterranean gardens, tropical gardens. And really this is an extension of the indoor rainforest biodome, Mm -hmm. bringing it outside, introducing some new habitats and environments. You look obviously at plants as well as as the animals as as you're speaking to there. What are some of the challenges about some of these plants in this region and making sure that they can survive and thrive? The temperature is definitely the hardest. Of course, when it's uh, the middle of summer, the blazing sun and 40 degrees or more, uh, some of the plants struggle a bit, but... Our team takes care of them, uh, whether it's different types of irrigation, scheduling, uh, shade. It's all happening. It's an ecosystem. It um, I understand you've got some um, arts and crafts and activities planned. What's going on? Because it's half term very soon indeed, and there are an awful lot of people have got that in the diary. So what can we look forward to? So for the rest of this week, from the 10th to the 15th, we are running some kids' activities uh, for people that want to come down to the nature park. We have some seed planting activities where, of course, some coloring and crafts as well. But the seed planting, kids can come plant a seed in a, into a pot and take it with them. So with our prize today, we're asking everyone to get in touch with what their spirit animal is. And we've had, well, a few sloths in the mix saying, uh, Madsen saying, I would definitely be a sloth. I'm lazy. I don't like to move much. Um, how does it work with entry and packaging of the tickets and add-ons? And what do we need to know about that access? Sure. So the nature park is included in the Green Planet admission. Uh, the Green Planet tickets start from 175 dirhams for an adult. Um, we can buy online at our website as well at thegreenplanetdubai.com. This includes access to the biodome, where all the animals live, and of course our new expansion in the nature park. The expansion also features a brand new soft play and an adventure trail. So you'll tire the children out. Yes, two brand new activities for the kids to run, explore, enjoy these treetop bridges and treehouses to run around and see the gardens from up, up above. That looks, I've seen a few photos and I'm really excited to bring the kids down because what I've you know, we've been big fans of the Green Planet since they were... I've got photos of my little one in a sling, you know, on me. Um, they seem to get something different from it every single time. Um, and I'm sure you've seen the little ones just herring it down that slope and just running down to the bottom as quickly as possible and then going up in the lift again and, and taking a second look. And for us, it depends. They always seem to have a different animal, but they also seem to be learning different something different at school and connect with different bits of information. Is that something you hear from families about... taking different things from experience every time. Absolutely. Every visit to the Green Planet is different. You'll walk through one day, even at a different time, and you'll see different animals, different behaviors, whether they're sleeping or active at certain times of the day. Uh, The lemurs love to sunbathe in the mid-afternoon around 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, because the sun is in the perfect position and they can sit in one of their favorite spots in the tree. But if you come in the morning, you might see them a little more active during one of the training sessions. So every day, every visit is a little bit different. Uh, Part of the new nature park as well, we've introduced... 20 giant animatronic 
insects. What? So these insects, they move. They, of course, there's some educational uh, signage around for our guests to learn. But this is information that we're adding to our school programs as well. But, of course, for our regular guests to learn about them. And then to go inside the biodome and see some of those real live insects inside. And insects... Sometimes a little spooky. It's October, so a little uh-huh. bit scary, but sometimes overlooked as well. So we want to emphasize and teach a little bit more about some of these very important insects, things like uh, millipedes, centipedes, snails that have different roles in the environment, whether mm-hmm. it's a decomposer or a food source or a pollinator, things like that. Your team there is so obviously well-educated, but so engaging as well. Uh, is there going to be an opportunity to, to have talks and, I don't want to say lectures as such, but but really learn one-on-one or in a small group about about some of the offerings? So right now through the weekend, we do have a biologist talk uh, up, up through Sunday. Uh, it's at three o'clock every day talking about some of those insects. Uh, this is inside the biodome with some of the live insects. But of course, when the guests visit, they can see the big giant ones outside. Um, but as for... Just in general, we do have a zookeeper for the day program. Uh, This is a great three-hour experience that you shadow the biologist, the zookeeper. You get to really kind of understand what this job is about. You get to go inside some of the animal exhibits, get to feed some of the animals that usually there's no interaction with. Mm -hmm. Um, And just going inside those exhibits is quite interesting and a different perspective as well. Eric, last time you came in, we were talking about the Middle East's first coniferous plants exhibit. How are those guys working out? Are they scared anyone yet? They haven't scared anyone yet, but they're doing good. They're yeah. growing, they're, they're, they're thriving, and they're eating. So this is your very last chance to tell me, what is your spirit animal and why? For you, it's a lemur. For me, it's an old English sheepdog. Tickets are available now for the Green Planet, this fantastic new edition, the Nature Park, which, as you said, is, you know, it's plants, but it's also activities, and it's the perfect time of year, I think, to really be enjoying that outside space. Eric, thank you so, so much. I'll let you get back to your happy place in that, uh, in that microdome. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.